This is Caregiver's Compass, an uplifting podcast all about the ins and outs of caregiving for a loved one. Tips, tricks, true stories, and experts. It's all here on Caregiver's Compass. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Caregiver's Compass. My name is Stephanie Muscat. I am a registered social worker and psychotherapist. Please note that this episode is not the act of psychotherapy. Please note that this episode is a two-part episode and will be continued next week. So we look forward to seeing you then for part two. So today we have a fellow social worker who I had the pleasure of meeting, I'd say a few months ago, we really connected through the grapevine, through other contacts in the caregiver community. And we have Dr. Lucina Lack. She is an associate professor in the School of Social Work at McGill University and an associate member of the Department of Pediatrics and Neurology Neurosurgery in the Faculty of Medicine at McGill University. She's a special interest in health-related quality of life and parenting of children with chronic health conditions and disabilities. She's the principal investigator on numerous studies documenting the lives of families of children with various disabilities. Thank you very much for being here. Do you want me to call you Lucy? Or yes, Lucy? please. Okay, yes, Lucy. Definitely. I really appreciate you being here. It's great to have the academic focus of all of this, and you've really done the work and been in there to see what has been studied and what the results have been. So I think it's wonderful to have you. We've had caregivers on this podcast of children with various disabilities. So to have your knowledge is really, really key. Thank you. So I wanted to just go into a little bit about how you became the professor that you are at McGill and I guess what led you to being interested in this area. Right. And that that is a story indeed. I um, started my career as a social worker at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. I was there for 17 years as a social worker. And most of those years, I think all but two, were spent in neurology, in the division of neurology, where I worked with kids and their families who have various neurological brain-based disorders or diagnoses. So ranging anything, anywhere from autism to, you know, severe intellectual impairment to, and of course, children with intractable epilepsy became a a bit of a specialty of mine. In fact, I just attended Dr. Sneed's retirement speech yesterday. I worked with Dr. Sneed for many years and uh, he gave a beautiful talk about what he's learned from patients. And similarly, I was very fortunate to learn a lot from the families about what their lives looked like. And uh, really, when I started to engage in research, I viewed research as a vehicle for telling their story, telling their story to each other, telling their story to the medical and health professions, so that the kind of struggles and challenges, as well as victories and and resilience that they had, could be documented. So I actually spent the first good chunk of my academic life documenting various aspects of of their life, ranging anywhere from, as you mentioned, health-related quality of life, 
in children with epilepsy, children under, undergoing epilepsy surgery, then shifting over to focusing on caregiver, caregiver health, documenting parenting, documenting various aspects of social determinants of health. And I can speak more in depth about any of those areas. And then more recently, as I am, I call it reaching the sunset side of my career, I've shifted my focus from documenting what their lived experiences are to seeing how I could use my my role at the university as well as in the community to make changes to the systems. And so I'm, I'm happy to address that as well. Sure. And I think it's really amazing to see that you went from a frontline role where you really got involved from that aspect and seeing what the challenges were to then moving forward and seeing okay, well, how can we change what's going on and what is the research behind that and how can we really look at the deeper areas of the system? That's so right. I, I mean, the, the idea that, that you can use research not only to tell a story or multiple stories, you can also use research to break down some of the myths that mm -hmm. exist. Yeah. And essentially that's where we, or where the evidence is very poor. So that's one of the areas that I started in was documenting outcomes of children undergoing epilepsy surgery together mm -hmm. with Dr. Mary Lou Smith and Irene Elliott. Irene was a clinic nurse specialist, nurse practitioner, mm -hmm. and Dr. Smith is a um, neuropsychologist. And we were seeing kids clinically that were coming back after epilepsy surgery that were still facing challenges, behavioral mm -hmm. challenges, challenges socially, even though the seizures had improved, their quality of life wasn't, wasn't improving. And uh, the, in the literature, we went to see what was there. there. That really wasn't documented adequately. And so we applied for some funding and we launched a study, a longitudinal study to, to ask the questions. Do, do, are, we, are, are we just, this is anecdotal. We're seeing that their behavior is not improving right away, that their social lives are not improving right away. Their cognitive function isn't improving right away even though their seizures were. So is that some, just something we're imagining or is that actually happening? And so we did follow these kids over, uh, we did a follow-up one year after surgery and two years after surgery. And using the measures that we had at the time, we didn't see that the group that underwent surgery improve that. Mm. We did, I believe, I think the narrative now is that they, the improvements declare themselves over a longer period of time. In other words, families can't anticipate that one or two years out, that, the, that there's going to be huge monumental shifts in any of those areas. Interesting. It takes time for those mm -hmm. things to declare themselves. Interesting. And I imagine that had a very big impact on their caregivers and their family members because... First of all, you're bringing your child to have this surgery, and then you're not really seeing the outcomes that you had hoped for. What were the main, I guess, concerns or main stressors of their caregivers at the time, would you say, after they realized that their children were not improving the way they hoped they, they would? Well, essentially, the what happened is it changed the consent procedure, right? So, so when families were consenting to to the surgery, we were able to say at the time, instead of saying, "Yeah, we expect things to get better," to help them to shape their expectations, to say, you know, the other things that you hope will improve, like your child's cognitive function, your child's memory, for example, or your child's behavioral dysregulation, 
we don't have any evidence to suggest that that's, that's going to happen right away. Mm-hmm. It may take time. Um, but we, we, we can say, you know, this is what we know about seizures improving. So on the one hand, you know, families are saying, well, if seizures improve, you know, hopefully my child will be able to attend more school or will be able to go out with friends. And certainly those things did happen. They, mm-hmm. Their school attendance, you know, certainly they were able to anecdotally, qualitatively, we knew that those kids were going back to school and weren't missing as much. Um, but the, the for the caregivers, actually, interestingly enough, they, they would come back and say, I know you told me that that wouldn't improve, but I'm still so disappointed. <laughs> Absolutely, of course, <laughs> which makes oh, sense. Yeah. yeah. Were there supports that were put in place in the home or ongoing groups or, you know, ongoing drop-in support for the caregivers once they were discharged home after the surgery? Yes. At the time, our role in uh, the epilepsy clinic was not relegated to inpatient work. No. It It was very, very much focused on also on outpatient work, meaning that we were following families afterwards. And seeing them in the clinic and even seeing them in between clinic appointments if, if need be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at the time, I also had, I was fortunate enough, I don't know whether this is still the case, but I was fortunate enough to be able to to go outside of the walls of the hospital and uh, work in schools. I mm-hmm. would be able to meet with teachers, principals, educational assistants to help them to understand child behavior. And I also worked with the Metro uh, Toronto Epilepsy Association and with uh, Epilepsy Ontario. So the role was very broad. In fact, I remember the slogan at the time at SickKids was hospital without walls. And that kind of metaphor, I I literally adopted (laughs) to my role. I mean, I love that because you're able to get out and educate. And that is such a big part of, of everything is that it's not just the surgery. It's what happens after and what happens in these kids' daily lives and how can we best support the children and their families. Intractable epilepsy is a very difficult, I mean, we never stop trying to treat the seizures, but these are children that have very frequent seizures mm-hmm. that can have an impact also on their behavior, can also have an impact on the side, the side effects of medication can also impact their behavior. And so how you frame your understanding of that child and their, their conduct or comportment is, is really important. And, and the, the frame of often that was used and misused, uh, this is one of the myths that I, that I battled against, is that the child is viewed as being lazy, unmotivated, you know, executive function is implicated or manipulative, you know, viewed as being bad, you know, mm-hmm. misbehaving. In, in very simplistic ways. And our role, Irene Elliott and I did a lot of, of sort of going out together to schools, in fact, to help them to understand that children with intractable epilepsy sometimes, not that they won't do what they're supposed to do, but sometimes it's more challenging for them yeah. to do what they're supposed to do. So it's a, it really is incumbent on their environment to recognize that and to work with that. Yeah. And it appears that you've had a really big impact in that area because you've been able to shape the lives of these children and their families in so many ways. I also imagine that seeing the seizures ongoing of their children, which I can't even imagine, was extremely traumatic for the family members involved. And did you look at all at at the trauma or, or any of that 
part of it in terms of managing their mental health? The trauma, recognition of trauma is in caregivers of children with intractable epilepsy is a relatively recent phenomenon. I don't think we were using that language back then. I mean, did I work with families in a way that was supportive and understanding and not, you know, aware not to, I would use now the word re-traumatize through, a, you know, being very supportive and explaining things, et cetera. But we didn't have that frame to work with back then. Mm-hmm. I must say, I think that's a relatively new phenomenon. I think we are learning that, you know, multiple admissions into the intensive care units and even uh, undergoing epilepsy surgery and watching your child seize in order to map where the seizures are coming from. That's a quite an experience. So is that what they do? They have to watch the child seize to then map the areas of the brain? That's correct. Wow. That's correct. The child is taken off their meds in the, um, or at least at the time, that's the way it was done. Wow. Uh, it was t- in order to, in order to conduct um, testing, neuropsychological testing, to make sure that the area of the brain that the seizures are coming from is is concise enough that they can remove it, mm-hmm. because that's where the seizures. They want to see that that's where the seizures originate, but they also want to make sure that the areas around that spot where the seizures are coming from are not what are called eloquent parts of the brain. In other mm-hmm. words, parts of the brain that are implicated in speech and, and mobility and so on. Wow. I didn't know that. And so what are you working on right now in terms of your research? Good question. So I've been very involved in a navigation project, which is um, has been funded by Kids Brain Health Network and uh, the Israeli Foundation. It is a uh, project that took place. It still is taking, we're, we're, we're winding down and sort of thinking about next steps, but it took place mainly out on the West Coast in BC, in Alberta, and in the Yukon. And more recently, we've brought the framework here to Montreal. And essentially, the navigation is a new, newish term that's used for, I think, what social workers would recognize as really good case management. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would call it wave three, you know, case management would have been wave one, family care coordination would have been wave two. And now we're thinking about navigation as, as, mm-hmm. as wave three, kind of a maritime metaphor. Okay. So yeah. Stay in that, in that wave, you know, way of thinking. So what we did is we went into the communities in Vancouver, originally in Whitehorse and in Edmonton, and we brought together stakeholders, held conversations with providers about ways in which and the experiences of caregivers or parents navigating the systems to access the support and care that their kids with disabilities need. So it was no longer just about kids with seizures. This is now broader. It's about children with developmental, brain-based developmental conditions um, needing to access income supports, uh, rehab services, um, uh, you know, educational supports, et cetera, et cetera. And and how we could make those pathways more uh, visible to to families. And families were saying, you know, our experience is that we sometimes know more than than the social workers do. 
And so in BC, there were um, a number of things that happened. Sunny Hill is a rehab center. Mm -hmm. And they found that when they were diagnosing kids with autism, then providing the families with a diagnosis and the report, and then they conducted a little study to follow up. And they found that these families were actually not connected to any services. Hmm. So it's not that services didn't exist. It's that the linkages weren't happening. And we were leaving it up to them take those linkages without them really understanding but these complex systems that they're now needing to be exposed to. So what Sunnyhill did is they made a, a legal arrangement between Autism Information Services, which is another government-run organization that provides them the follow-up and the support to ensure that the child gets to the therapies that they need, et cetera, et cetera. It was a small change so that it wasn't, the families were no longer responsible for being the ones to initiate services, their child's name and their name would go to Autism Information Services. Autism Information Services would then contact them to say, hey, are you ready? It's called system nudging. It's not, it's not rocket science here. It made, a, it made a difference. The other thing that we've been doing out in BC is we've been trying to render where navigation supports exist and make them more visible to families. Hmm. so that they know where they can go to access those services. We're bringing navigators together into, to, to talk about what they do through us. We brought them together through a couple of summits. And now there's, a, a, there's some communities of practice that are popping up in the province to, uh, as navigators from different systems that have you know, never spoken to one another before are speaking to one another. And, and developing some, some ways of, of, you know, supporting them, peer support, if you will. Very interesting. I, I imagine that these families didn't even know that these supports were available, let alone that they were supposed to initiate it. That's so right. it's, and I, you know, I see that a lot in my, my own work where, you know, I work mostly with the elderly and their families have no idea that certain things exist and how to access them. And, you know, what that can do for them. And it's just that little, it's literally a sentence where it's like, oh, you know, let me reach out to them and they'll call you. And that's it. And that can change their entire life. That's absolutely true. And, and then the, the third piece that we've been working on out in BC has to do with, with um, an organization called the Family Support Institute. And it is an, an incredible organization that was started by parents and has now grown and, it, and there are parent peer mentors or navigators across the province. And they train these parent peer navigators because there's really something that parents can do for other parents that no social worker or professional can do. There are things that they can say to each other and, and learn from one another because of they have the same lived experience, if you will, that is essential, I think. And the beauty of our project is that when we brought our three sites together, Alberta said, we want to do that here in Alberta. We want to develop what you're doing. And, uh, and they did. They have. They, they've learned from the model in BC, and they're now implementing it in, in Alberta, a peer mentor system. Wow. And are there group, I always think about therapy and mental health supports for the parents and for caregivers in general. Are there group peer you know, led supports or are there any specific mental health supports for the caregivers? Do those things exist in that area? 
You know, I think the the peer mentoring is probably, I mean, I don't know that they would see themselves as, as providing mental health support per se. No, it's certainly not professional. It's peer to peer. And so parents feel more supported by being able right. to, you know, peer, a peer mentor, for example, would go with a parent to the school for for a meeting, for, for example, with the psychologist or the social worker there too. And if the parent has been traumatized by, you know, their experience with the school, this other parent it sometimes is there to speak for them. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's I, I would argue, is very supportive, right? Yes. And but an advocate. Yes. Yes. In an, in an advocacy kind of way. But I can't say that I came, I'm trying to think if there were any programs that I've come across that are specifically for parent caregivers to meet, to address their mental health out there. I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Now, certainly Patrick, as you know, um, Donna Thompson is, has spoken about trauma and Pat McGraw has been developing and evaluating a pilot that is addressing this in phenomenon of trauma among caregivers. But I honestly, I did not see it out there. Interesting. It's interesting. I mean, it's not a bad thing, you know, to identify the gaps and see. And it seems like they've come a long way out in those provinces in terms of the supports and the navigation and how to connect families to these areas. But yeah, I think we're just starting in many areas of caregiving, whether that's caregiving of children or caregiving of the elderly or anywhere in between. We're just starting to recognize that caregivers are their own group and need their own mental health supports. And it just doesn't fall under that, you know, general category because really they have to be understood in order to get the the right fit of treatment. And I'm I'm seeing, you know, more and more that people are recognizing there's just not that doesn't exist. No. Um, In fact, I think my certainly my experience as a social worker in pediatrics is that, you know, parents would say, Lucy, all my mental health will be better if my child is better. Yeah, you know, my, it's very difficult to, to when parents are desperately trying to get what their child needs, yeah. uh, the services and supports that they need, you know, the adequate support at school, um, to focus on themselves, right? And to cre- to create, they they don't have time. They don't have it. Yeah. They don't. It's hard for them to carve out the space for themselves, um, yeah. and to give themselves permission to say, uh, you know. What I mean, we would use the old, you know, metaphor: put your mask on first, your oxygen mask on first, before you put your one on your child. Otherwise, but and and people understand that cognitively. Yeah, yeah. I get it, but it's really hard to do. I know when I was raising my children, if somebody told me that Lucy, you thought it better would be looking after your mental health. <laughs> I would have been like, I don't, I don't have the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, for sure. You know it. It's something that it's a balance and it's definitely, you know, that self-care piece and where does that fit in and how do you care for yourself? Because I think there's a lot of loss involved too with the parents, you know, potentially they have had to give up a career or they've had to give up, you know, some luxuries that maybe they could have paid for because they have to do other things and they don't, they can't connect with friends and in ways that they could have previously so or their friends don't have the same experience yes. as they have yep. raising their child and so it's it's challenging for them to be in groups yep. of other with you know when others are not experiencing exactly exactly thanks for listening to caregivers compass 
If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. I'm Stephanie Muscat. Have an uplifting day and I'll see you next time.